0: Diane. It's uh, two weeks in a row. It's great to see you.
1: Hey, Michael. It, it is good to see you as well. And I'm so excited to report that our schools are opening. Uh, <laughs> we've been talking about this all year and it is literally finally happening for us. Uh, it was it was surprisingly emotional to see the pictures and hear the stories from our various campuses. And I'm happy to report the overriding emotion for students and parents and educators was joy, like literally pure joy. Uh, There's so many important moments, all of the work the team has done on safety, operations, logistics, everything worked and ran smoothly and people felt and were safe. And The reflections from the students along the lines of, you know, I did more in one day today at school than I've done in the last month at home. I mean, they really illustrate how much some of our students need to be in physical school buildings. And um, honestly, Michael, it's the most hope that I've felt in quite a while. And so I'm so excited to be here today.
0: That's awesome, Diane. And first, congrats, congrats to your whole team because it's obviously a whole team that makes this happen. But you know, seeing the winding journey that so many continue to be on has has just continued for me to be something else. Uh, and you know, hearing your news though really brightens my own day as well. But these up and ups and downs, and particularly you know then these big ups, are a big reason we obviously started this podcast, Diane, to you know to help people through them and to also continue to give some sense of optimism that as we struggle through these moments, to parents and educators, that they can see some of these difficult moments as opportunities to innovate and do things better, build back better, if you will.
1: Well, that's what we're all about here. And I am really excited for our conversation today, Michael, because I think it's going to be filled with optimism and how we build back better better. Um, you know we have been noticing lately that a few topics keep coming up for us, and we've both been feeling like we want to do a deeper dive on them. Um, and we really want to call back to our first season when we interviewed a bunch of experts to gather their perspectives on how the pandemic has or hasn't influenced their thinking and the opportunities and challenges they see.
0: And one of the topics that keeps coming up for both of us during these podcasts has been designing for innovation. And and we began this podcast with the belief that the pandemic could really be this catalyst for communities to rethink and redesign their schools, to not just go back to normal. And I know I speak for both of us when I say we've both been a bit disappointed that so much of the energy has been going to just dealing with the day-to-day of running schools during this tumultuous time. And we've also wondered if communities just don't have the right supports around them and the structures that they need to redesign.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And and the good news seems to be that the opportunity has not passed us by. So we're a little bit worried about that. But but if anything, the need for redesign is more present at at schools right now as they consider how to make the most of summer. A call that we talked about last week, made by our new Secretary of Education. Um, they are also facing down several years to come, where they will have to address the countless student needs that have been created by this incredibly disruptive year. And so fortunately, they are going to have an influx of financial resources to support this work, uh, which makes this very timely.
0: Yeah. And obviously, you know, financial resources coming in brings both opportunity and challenge. You know, are schools going to really leverage those resources for change? Or will they fritter them away and just sort of go back to status quo? And in a few weeks, just to preview what's coming as we're going to come down this uh, set of podcasts uh, with experts, we're going to dive deeper into the money questions and try to trace a path that makes sense uh, with Marguerite Rosa, who is just the smartest person I know on school finances, Diane.
1: Uh, I am really looking forward to that conversation, Michael. But uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, I'd love to introduce our two guests today. Um, Alon Samud and Jeff Wetzler are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Transcend Education. Uh, I'm going to let them tell us about their work that they do with communities, a, a concept that came up in our last uh podcast, but but I will make a brief personal introduction and share that to me, Jeff and Elon embody the values, beliefs, and actions that make me hopeful and optimistic about the future of education in America. Uh, I deeply admire uh, both how they have formed and operate their own organization. Uh, the Transcend team is among the most diverse, collaborative, thoughtful groups I know. And how they work with community partners across the nation. Um, and just, they're two of my favorite people in the world. So I'm so grateful to be here with them. And um, so grateful that you two have agreed to talk with us today. Welcome, Jeff and Elon.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. Um, we, we will kick off with just having you guys tell us just briefly what Transcend does and you know, if and how it's changed at it all because of COVID-19.
2: Sure. So uh, our mission at Transcend is to support communities everywhere to develop and spread extraordinary equitable learning environments. Um, and as we, you, you all talk quite, about, quite a bit about, we believe that that means breaking out of this industrial model of education that is trapping all of us, trapping young people, Trapping teachers, trapping administrators, trapping families and communities, um, and it's funny you you referenced earlier like people have not yet made the most of this moment, um, and and part of that is people have just been so busy dealing with all of the most pressing you know response needs of COVID, but really even pre COVID one of the features of the industrial model is that it leaves very little time to step back and think about what to do differently and what is this thing that's trapping us. It's one of those kind of self-sealing features of the model itself. We all have to grind so hard just to operate school in that design of school that it leaves no time to to think about innovation. So Transcend is really here as an R&D supporter of schools, um, to do that kind of deep design work that we see in so many other industries, but that we just have not resourced communities to do in education. We think of ourselves in many ways as a hub for R&D, where communities can come um, and really come together to ask what matters for students. What does that mean for the kinds of experiences we wanna develop? What does that mean for the kind of designs we wanna build? But also to find models that they can learn and borrow from, because we know that communities don't have the time and resources, nor is it necessary for everyone to build all of it themselves. And so, both on the side of supporting communities to actually get going on these kinds of design journeys, but also to find models that can support them and other kinds of supporters along the way, that's a lot of what Trendset works on. Elon, what would you add?
3: It's a great uh, a great description um, and uh, and I can dive into any part that seems most interesting for the audience, Dan and Michael.
0: Terrific. Well, Elon, why don't I kick it to you uh, uh, with this next question, which is, you know, Diane and I talk a lot about the design process in this podcast, but we'd, we'd love to hear from your perspective. Why is that such an important part of what schools need to embrace going forward?
3: Uh, well, you know that you're speaking our language, too. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, you know, I would say um, one principle to ground in is that all learning environments are designed <laughs> Uh, They may not have a great design, um, but they have uh, um, some organization of decisions uh, that usually have been made over time, uh, you know, and and unfortunately, a lot of cases, they haven't been made with coherence. Um, and, And so the design process, the reason why we think it's important is because we believe that the experience that the humans in the learning environment have, students, families, educators that that experience needs to be rich and it needs to be coherent. Um, And uh, and what we found is that it's not possible to achieve that level of coherence without having a very intentional design process um, where you're asking some of the questions that Jeff named, what is the purpose of school? What are the aims? What are the principles that need to undergird the experience and then making decisions about those experiences and the elements that make those experiences come alive with that alignment? Um, And so, so, you know, in short, the, the design process is important because it leads to uh, a design that is coherent. And we found that a design process, when it is community-driven, also builds the conditions required to implement that design with fidelity, conditions like coalition, um, clarity, conviction in the model. Uh, And so for us, that that design process that you're talking about leads to both a coherent design and to the the conditions that you need um, Mm. for extraordinary and equitable learning.
1: That's um, super helpful. I'm curious to hear from you guys how you even start the process of designing with a school and community. Jeff, you have noted that one of the challenges is like school doesn't stop and our model is so consuming. We're just go, go, going. And so, you know, usually educators think, Oh, maybe I get one week in the summer to like do my master visioning. And, and I'm thinking what you guys are describing takes a lot more than like a person in an office for a week in the summer. Um, and, and Elon, you're talking about, you know, the, these conditions that need to be in place. So how do you even start with a school? Where, where do they begin? What does that look like?
2: There can be a lot of different starting points um, so, so for some for some school communities, the starting point really is a, that something catalyzes them to say we are either dissatisfied with the experiences our young people are having right now or we think something's changing in the world that makes us think that they're gonna need something different. Um, Sometimes that could be a set of parents who come together with an administrator to be thinking about that. Sometimes that could be someone in a district who uh, starts a book club or a learning group or different things like that. There may also be situations where there's an actually pressing need. So maybe there's a pressing mental health need, for example, that would lead a community to say, um, we don't want to just put a Band-Aid on the mental health issues going on. We want to actually go deeper. Sometimes it may get triggered because there's an instructional need or a learning need or different things like that. So there can be different trigger points. Um, and I think you know, it's consistent with what Elon said about the importance of communities driving the design work. It's important that that, that those trigger points are initiated by communities and, and finding what the right one is. Um, to your point about how uh, it's time-consuming. We, we have yet to find any way that this can work without some amount of protected time and space. Um, because if you just try to jam it into the, you know, literally the schedule that exists right now, there's going to be no time for it. Um, that doesn't mean it, everything else needs to grind to a halt. Um, there can be uh, release time for teachers. There can be after-school sessions. There can, there, you know, there can be things that can happen over the summer for some intense design sprints and things like that. But the amount of time that is required can also be lessened with support that schools can have as well for the design process, whether that's support among people who can facilitate design sessions or bring research that's already synthesized to the table around things like future trends or the science of learning and development, uh, or even just hold the pen to capture next steps and figure out who's going to do what. Um, So there there is a key role for support to make this something that's practical.
0: Jeff, I want to double click on that because, uh, well, there's a lot that you just said that that is resonating. But I, you know, I wrote recently about uh, what I, what is called threat rigidity response. Basically, that when teams see something as a threat, uh, it's great for galvanizing resources to tackle something, but it also freezes people in place and sort of they they just start to become very compliance oriented and just sort of uh, like they have to follow the rules almost and implement top down as opposed to see something as an opportunity. And that in order to see something as an opportunity, you really have to take that initial threat framing, take the resources that come from it, because that's obviously important, but then task a separate team almost that that is has some freedom from the day-to-day responsibilities to really tackle that. And, and so something I've been just dying to ask is, if, you if, you know, essentially you just named that as a key condition, I'm curious, can, can you give a little bit more color of what that looks like? Maybe with some examples from schools about, you know, how do they get a small group of people to have the, you know, a full-time job around designing as opposed to implementing what's currently ongoing or, uh, you know, maybe your team comes in and provides some of that uh, extra ammunition, just, just some examples about how a resource-strapped school can really Carve out that time and space would 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 be great. Alon, do you want to jump in there first? Sure.
3: Yeah. So um, that protected time and space is um, is critical, um, and you know, in other industries, I think it's worth remembering that that protected time and space for R and D is often not. Put on the practitioners themselves while they while they do their jobs. Um, doctors who were on the front lines of the uh, uh, who've been on the front lines of the COVID pandemic were not charged with coming up with the vaccine. Um, uh, really good point, and, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and and maybe we wouldn't have one if we did it that way. Um, but um, uh, and so um, it weighs a lot on it. And and you know that I'm not an expert at th- threat rigidity response. Although I'd love to learn more. Um, my my instinct, and please confirm or redirect me if I'm wrong, is that some of that comes from fear. Yeah, right. totally. That response comes yep. <laughs> right. Um, and so the combination of I don't have time and I'm afraid freezes me in place. And so um, uh, the, the one solve is to actually literally bring capacity to the table, right? Um, in the form that, you know, Jeff said, let's get a group together. And even though y- you may not have 20 hours this week to engage in it, if you can engage with, you know, if there's a student and a parent and an educator and a principal that can sit together, you know, for an hour, um, and we can brainstorm some stuff, and then someone can do some work for 15 hours on your behalf, we start to approach the kind of capacity that the school needs. That's number one. And number two, whatever those moments are that we're able to bring community members together to discuss and wrestle with ideas, bring the fear factor down, right? So um, create the space to explore. Um, And that's as much about um, helping people dream and see a different reality Mm. as it is um, actually tackling and rationalizing some of the very real threats right in front of us. Um, And importantly, I think you know, not every threat is irrational, right? Like not every fear is irrational, right? Um, And so being able to help people differentiate, um, and we saw this a lot in our work with schools as they were managing the pandemic, where it's like, there are some responses that just really have to happen. Like there are kids that need food and we need to figure that out. We're not gonna talk about like new pedagogical approaches to reading and there's gonna be hungry kids, right? Like, um, uh, so some of those you, you just gotta respond to. And some of them, you might be putting more stock in that authority than you need to, um, and, uh, and can we disentangle it and actually bring it into the dreaming space? Um, and so, so some of it is giving the permission to let go of certain threats, um, uh, especially if there's the capacity to deal with um, this hard work of figuring out a different future.
1: Uh, This is fascinating to me, and I want to pull out a couple of threads that you're all talking about and tie them to something Michael and I have been talking about um, recently, which is the difference between doing to a community and doing with a community. And, um, you know, I will say as someone who is is continues to sort of lead a network of schools, Jeff, when you started giving your examples of how this journey can begin, many of them included, you know, parents or community worried about something. And as someone who leads a school system, I literally have a physical response to that because it does feel like a threat to me. Like as a school leader, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem. And parents are going to get upset and angry. And like, we're going to have these crazy board meetings and it's going to be, you know, newspaper articles. And, And so what I hear you both saying is there's an opportunity for me to not view that as a threat and for it not to go sideways, because we've all seen lots of communities where this does not go well and a new design does not come out of it, right? Um, And instead, if I can have the right resources and the right mindset, I can actually take that partnership with families and partnership would be the key word there, I think, to move forward. So I'm wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about the difference between with and to, and like how those pieces come together and like how people like me could maybe reinterpret some of these situations to, to be, you know, get some of the things that we wanna have happen accomplished or something.
2: Yeah, uh, happy to start and in, uh, Elon jump in, but um, I mean, I think the, the essence of 2 a community, just to start with that part of the question, I think is when someone, whether that is an external organization like Transcend or any other external organization, or a government agency, or a policymaker, or even a system leader, feels as though they know what's best for the students and families in a community, and essentially just makes that call um, and and imposes that. Um, and I think we've seen examples of that over time in education. Uh, it usually doesn't go well. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't go well, I, guess, I think, for two reasons. One is, it, it it's hard to know the right answer from, from a distance. Uh, and two is, even if it is a good answer, it's hard, you, you need a sense of coalition for it to actually be embraced and sustained. Um, and so I think the essence of doing with starts just with a deep, deep belief that um, expertise lies everywhere in a community, that young people and their parents and families are experts uh, in themselves um, and in what their hopes are and what their dreams are and who they are as people and what their identities are um, and what their interests are. And, all, and, and you can't design a learning environment without that expertise. Um, and so uh, I think to me that's the essence of designing with. And then that, that unfolds to say, all right, then how could you have a process where people are not actually deeply collaborating on sharing their expertise and exploring different options and different things like that. And I think what we have found over and over again is that when you do that, the community collectively has a greater sense of ownership of what's going on, but also makes just tons of better decisions. I mean, one, just one small example, even in COVID, a lot of what we did was to work with communities initially on just designs for hybrid learning or remote learning. Um, and one of the questions that we often asked schools when we worked with them was, have you run this plan by parents? Um, and, uh, that's a very, that, you know, that, that's a very low bar for what we're talking about with designing with, I mean, that's, that's, I will just say that's more like getting feedback and input, but surprisingly, a lot of, a lot of schools had not run their plans by parents. Um, and it's not a, it's not a point of blame because it's just such a crazy time to be able to make all different kinds of decisions. But often the answer we got back was, no, we haven't. Do you think we should? And our answer always was, yes, you should. And invariably, parents surprised them with, you know, this actually would not work for us if if this was the... So that's just a very small micro example, but hopefully that illustrates a little bit of the spirit.
1: But Jeff, exactly what you're saying. I'm just going to once again resonate as the school leader in this time you know, it felt like it was my job to like stand up and figure out how we're going to make it through this pandemic and find the solution. And so um, it's not surprising that that was the mindset of these leaders and then how great that you all were there to just help them see that differently and change that dynamic, I'm sure in a really powerful way.
3: I was just going to one quick thing back to the design process. Um, to the extent that these design journeys towards reinvented schools are multi-year the more that folks can proactively have the structures where it's not a one-off but just a common practice mm-hmm. to have a team of people where you're garnering that expertise you know for so many places these insights are happen at, in a reactive way rather than you know Uh, embedding a, you know, community design process over a number of years. Um, And so I, I just think it's a connection with what we just talked about and how we set the design process up to begin with.
0: It's super interesting to hear you both talk about it. And and I think it brings up two issues that Diane and I are both curious about. I'm going to start with one and then we we can circle around to the other afterwards. But I I guess it's uh, the thought that occurs to me is I'd love to hear you talk about the process of iterating in a school community with students and parents who have existing expectations about what school should be like or, or, you know, uh, I mean, you both sort of alluded to it, right? The the leader comes up with this great idea, says we're going to do X and then sort of, I'm going to you know, bring it from on high and show them how it is. And then the parents and children sort of say, oh, wait a second, that's not going to work. And I think it's often interpreted as, well, we just want it the way it was. W- what's been your experience though in that? And, and when you're designing with, as opposed to, you know, to, if you will, um, does that dynamic, change it all. Jeff, why don't you start?
2: Sure. I mean, I think that maybe it might be worth unpacking what are some of the conversations that happen in the design process, because I think that might illuminate uh, some of the some of the issues in your question. One of the conversations that we have a lot is, where's the world going? because we know that um, uh, part, at least part of the purpose of education is to prepare young people to navigate the world. Um, and if you're going to navigate the world, you need to know how the world's changing. Um, so we spend a lot of time um, exploring what are the trends? What are the economic trends? What are the job trends? What are the climate trends? What are the justice trends, et cetera? And when we explore those trends, we ask the question, what... What does this mean for what young people are going to need to be able to thrive in this world um, and, and contribute to the world becoming even better? And when people really sit in those in those trends, they come to the conclusion that young people need something very different than what the industrial model of school was designed to give them young people are going to need to be not just solving problems, but finding problems um, and finding what the next problem is um, and working collaboratively and all the things that I, you know, Summit does so well and I know you all know so much about. Um, we also spend a bunch of time exploring what does research say about how learning actually happens? What, like, what is the science of motivation? What is the science of cognition? What is the science of development or individual variability? And very quickly, um, People realize if you were to design a school that truly honored the science, it would look very different than the school that we're all participating in and running right now. Uh, And so, uh, you know, then, then there's lots of conversations that we have that just derive from following students around and seeing what their actual experiences are today um, or under, and asking what, what do they wish for, what do they want, et cetera. So all of these different kinds of provocations ultimately lead people, to, to, uh, I think, themselves to realize this is, this is, we want something very different and there's ideas. And then, of course, you can expose people to different kinds of learning environments. Let's visit Summit or let's visit a Montessori school or visit, let's visit any other number of other kinds of things or even learning environments that are not schools and see what that does in the first place. And I think that you know, the, ultimate, um, I think the ultimate sign of success, uh, we heard from a superintendent recently who described to us that when, when they were done with this whole process and they had a vision for what they wanted to try, she was deeply scared to try it because it was risky and it was different, it would require a ton of change. But then she thought to herself, what's actually scarier would be to go back to what we were doing before. And when you have those different differential levels of that, that the fear of actually going back to what we had before versus the fear of all the change that can unlock the energy that we're talking about here uh, among many different people.
3: Yeah. And just to add one more thought to that, th- what Jeff is describing, um, I would I would phrase as a community that's designing together is a community that has to be learning together. Um, and they're learning from students, they're learning from inspiring places to visit, they're learning from the science of learning, they're learning from future trends. And if that learning is happening together, um, then it really is hard to go back because everyone was there when you had the discoveries, right? Um, this wasn't a discovery you had at a conference somewhere as a system leader that like, oh, maybe I just won't mention that. Um, you actually all listen to the kids say, I don't feel like my identity is being respected and I have any agency in this school. Um, and now, We actually have to do something about it because there's going to be a lot of people unhappy for us to not act, right? Um, And so, you know, a community designed together is a community that learns together.
1: Wow. That's really, <laughs> um, it's it's insightful and it's, it's part of that hopeful idea of shouldn't schools be learning communities? I mean, isn't that the idea that somehow as grownups, we know everything we need to know and we're not going to continue to learn. And, you know, I often think about how much you know, I learn from the youth and um, how we don't listen. They generally have the answers. We just have to listen to them. I totally agree. Which I think brings us to sort of our last question here. Uh, We could talk forever with you guys, but but for at least for today, um, which is we as a system of educators, we often take this very data-driven approach to things. And especially now when we have federal data and state data and like data and rankings and data and more data and more data. And um, I'm not sure that that drives your work. And in my sense, um, there's much more storytelling and narrative in the design work. And so I wonder if you guys could talk about that. Um, you know, what's what's the importance of, you know, talking about real experiences and embedding that into the work? Um, how, how do you experience that?
2: I can start. Uh, I think, I mean, there's, your question has so many layers to it and could be taken at a very, very deep level, all the way to questions of what counts as valid knowledge. Um, and there is a lot of, I think, important discussion emerging right now in the field of what is valid data and whose, whose experiences uh, count as legitimate. Um, and I think we could, we could have a whole conversation about the ways in which white supremacy culture has infused uh, the, the, dis- the, the discourse about data. Um, but we think about stories as data, too. Um, and lived experiences as data, too. And when we step back and think about the total range of possible experiences and data that could be informing something, the kind of data that we typically talk about of standardized test data is just such a small, narrow slice, even though that has gotten so much weight and attention uh, in the education discourse. Um, but when a, when a young person is describing what their day-to-day experience is in school, that's data. Um, and, when, uh, and when a parent is saying what they hope for, that's data as well. And so we try to open the aperture around data and also simultaneously um, bring a lens of critical reflection on what are, how are we listening to the data as well and what's the listening that we bring, um, uh, both transcend and a community in its design process so that we can mine the, uh, the wisdom that, that lives, uh, as you said, Diana, in students and in families who know so much and have so many of the, so many of the answers. But then at a different level, we also talk about stories as um, an important source of inspiration. Because when one community is wrestling with something, if they can grasp onto what happened in another community and how did they get, break through that barrier, that can be a huge unlock. Um, and so we invest a lot in storytelling as well, literally as an input into the design process too.
3: Yeah. And just to add one last thing, when we think about if the goal is extraordinary and equitable learning everywhere, um, our, our definition of that includes the outcomes, right? Some of which are, can you read and do math? Those are important outcomes. We're not saying they're not important, but it also includes the experience of school, right? Um, in, and that's not necessarily... But neither of those are fully measurable by, you know, by metrics, Um, uh, but they can. But there is evidence of impact. Um, And I'm just reminded that, like, you know, the, the John Dewey, like, education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. Like what that calls us to do is say, you know. Experiences matter in and of themselves. Uh, And so uh, it's not just about broadening the outcomes we care about. It's actually about broadening our conception of what's important, um, which includes both the outcomes and the experiences of school themselves.
0: Both your answers just there just um, bring back to mind for me, um, my my mentor, Clay Christensen's uh, um, uh, teachings and thoughts. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. It would have been his 70th birthday when this is released. Uh, um, So, um, uh, you know, he always said uh, God didn't create data. Humans create data. And we did it to try to understand uh, the world as best as we can. And and we can only do so imperfectly, which is why we need data. Um, And that data is not just an artifact from a, you know, a stat book or something else, but every single... Piece of information that we produce is data. And that's what you all are pointing to. And I, I just appreciate you guys uh, making that point and sharing it. So um, as we wrap up our time together, you know, something Diane and I always do is step back and Uh, end each podcast with a few words about what we're reading and listening to and watching and uh, Jeff, Alon, we'd we'd love it if you'd share with us uh, what's got your attention right now perhaps outside your immediate work and then uh, Diane and I can do a little reflection as well but Jeff, uh, why don't don't you go first, you're on my screen first and then Alon, you can go next.
2: Happy to Uh, I'll say uh, something I'm listening to and then a book, Um, there's a podcast that a friend of mine named Antonio Saunders has recently launched called The Promised Land Um, And it is just a beautiful set of stories, speaking of stories, of people all across the country who are doing the real work of racial equity Um, and really deep personal work and the and the podcast just goes so gets so personal and gets so deep and every every episode that I listen to um, just pushes me um, and inspires me as well and so uh, that that's a, a podcast I would really recommend to lots of people um, and then there's a book that recently came out um, on the you know in the topic of our field called the education we need for a future we can't predict um, by Professor Thomas Hatch uh, at teachers college and he really brings a global lens into to how schools change, um, and has a lot of insights about why things don't work, uh, which is as important as any, you know, as any other kinds of stories. So I'll stop there.
0: Those are good. Elon.
3: Uh, I'm going to go the fiction route, uh, and share that I'm reading foundation by foundations by Isaac Asimov, um, uh, which, uh, fast forwards the world, uh, in, I think maybe 10,000 years, um, uh, where, uh, it seems that Asimov has correctly predicted where we would be today uh, on the cusp of artificial intelligence and robots taking over the world in both good and bad ways. Um, and I found it both uh, alluring but also uh, informative about, uh, you know, when we talk about skating to where the puck is going, um, it feels like he made a massive <laughs> um, provocation um, with that series of books.
0: Can I make a confession now that Sal Khan gave me that book uh, several years ago and I still haven't read it? So <laughs> this is... I, that, now you time, pushed me... Gosh, yeah, now you pushed me on to, uh, <laughs> to, to drum it back up. But uh, that, that, no, that's great for from both of you. I'll, I'll just share that I just finished reading uh, Mike McShane's new book uh, called Hybrid Homeschooling, uh, which of course felt quite topical given these current times. But it's actually not really at all about COVID-19. It's much more about the growing trend of homeschoolers attending schools in a regular, substantial, and structured uh, uh, part of the week. And so parents still have control over that schooling experience, but there's really... A stronger community aspect uh, that often takes place in traditional school districts, actually. And uh, for me, many of the individual stories of of parents that they told uh, were quite fascinating. And I will confess, Diane, that given uh, my own last thirteen months with my daughters, uh, parts of it really resonated with me. What's been on? What's been in your uh, in, in your list?
1: Well, um, this is the time of year where I really start thinking about next year in terms of our organizational priorities and how we organize ourselves to meet them. Um, and in this year of upheaval, it really has me returning to our core values and our culture as an organization. Um, and so as a result, I have pulled off my shelf and am nose deep in Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness consciousness. That is a mouthful. Um, I've pulled it out because I think it adds a really useful, and let's be clear, provocative perspective as a a sort of counterweight to what we are so accustomed to in traditional organizational structure. Um, It offers some real food for thought as we seek to create what I like to think of as this sort of third-way approach (laughs) to organizations, this multi-dimensional approach, which is kind of the theme of what we try to do here in general, Michael. So um, that's what I'm reading this week.
0: Yeah, no, it's perfect. Perfect. And I'll, I, so I, two things that I got to bring back on the list that I haven't made my, made my way through that I'm getting called out on. But uh, just th- look, that'll do it for today. But Elon, Jeff, just huge thanks to both of you for being here. I mean, we just you, you all have so much wisdom to offer and, and Diane and I appreciated uh, benefiting uh, from it today. So thank you so much for joining us and all of you listening. Thanks for joining us as well. We'll be back next time on Class Disrupted.